This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at cosmicpotato.com. We interrupt this program to annoy you and make things generally irritating. <laughs> Welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. We've got you covered with everything from Marvel to Star Wars. I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to take this time to explain my evil plan. Classic films, trivia games, and beyond. Come to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Now, on with the show. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Hey everybody and welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast, the show that knows that paramedics are actually a Ghostbusters preemptive strike team. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> My name is Sean Ray and uh, sitting here in the virtual studio with me is Rick. How are you, sir? I'm dandy, thanks. How you doing? I'm doing great. And uh, Scott is here as well. How you doing, Scott? I'm feeling like I need a Ghostbusters preemptive strike team. <laughs> um, no, the big thing that we have, and judging by the show title, you know that we're going to talk about the Armin Shimmerman interview today, um, and we're going to play that for you. But before we get it, got into that, I wanted to ask you guys, have you seen the new Captain Marvel trailer? Yes. Yes. What did you think? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> I, okay, I, I was waiting to see if Sean had, or uh, I'm sorry, if Scott had any any uh, more. <sighs> All right, here's the deal. I don't know squat about the character, so I know a lot of people are squeeing up a storm about it. I thought it looked like a perfectly serviceable superhero trailer, but since the only thing I know about Captain Marvel is that there's a character named Captain Marvel and they're a woman. That's the extent of my knowledge of the character, so nothing in that trailer either turned me on or turned me off. <laughs> it's not too far away from that for me. Um, my my knowledge of and experience with the character is very limited, um, as is my knowledge of and experience with uh, Brie Larson. So I don't have a whole lot of connection to the movie. It looked like a very well-put-together trailer um, as a... Uh, a Marvel superhero film that is focusing on a female character, um, rather like uh, Wonder Woman did a great job of with uh, with the DCEU. Uh, it it looks like it's going to be a good time. Uh, I think it is on a couple levels going to be a success. I I feel a little uh, hesitant to to talk about it in in these types of terms, but. Uh, Black Panther was very successful for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them being it was able to reach out to and uh, tap uh, an audience demographic that most of the Marvel movies haven't so far. I don't know that Captain Marvel is going to have that type of success for the same reason. Uh, because I think for the MCU movies that have come already I think that it has more of a female audience than it does an African-American audience uh, going into Captain Marvel. So I don't think it's going to see as much of a boost as Black Panther gave it. Uh, but I'm sure there's going to be uh, 
an, an uptick and a, a wider appeal to the general audience because of who the main character is. Um, other than that, the, the effects look nice. The, the cast looks good. Um, I'm on board with many other people online who believe that we are going to see Nick Fury lose his eye in this film. Uh, and I'm also very excited to see Clark Gregg come back to the, um, the MCU film universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, especially now that spoilers, uh, he's more than likely dead in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like really dead this time? Uh, yeah, they, they set it up that, um, what was keeping him or what had brought him back to life and was keeping him alive since the beginning of the series. Um, he had traded the life giving effects of that for temporary use of, um, the spirit of vengeance when they had ghost rider on the show. So very briefly for one episode, Colson was ghost rider and the trade off that he had to give for that was the benefit that was keeping him alive from that alien procedure. So his health had been declining in the second half of this latest season. And like I said, spoilers, people, um, the season ends with Colson and, uh, may played by Ming Na, uh, finally admitting to the fact that, uh, they love each other and they go to Tahiti. Jesus. And that's where Colson is going to spend his last very short amount of time that he has, that his body has left. Um, and that, that's the end of the season. They're, they're on a sandy beach and it's sunny and it looks nice. And then boom, season's over. They didn't know if they were coming back for another season. So they wanted to set it up in such a way that it could be a series finale if it had to be. Um, I think they are coming back, but they have not said whether or not, uh, um, Clark Gregg is going to still be on the show. Well, you didn't okay. actually they, see him die, so <laughs> right, you, you didn't actually see him die. And if they if they have said whether or not he's coming back, I haven't seen it. So now, one thing I will say about the Captain Marvel trailer that I got a kick out of is uh, Blockbuster Video has become the buggy whip of the 20th century. <laughs> um, I was impressed with the the uh, economy of how easily that set the time. Just you know, having her crash through the roof of a of a Blockbuster. Uh, just you know, firmly plants the plants it in the in the in the eighties or or even early nineties, wherever it's going to yeah, be. Yeah, it's supposed to be nineteen ninety two, I think, is when it takes place. But it it definitely makes it not now without having to dive into any eighties slash nineties cliches. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a great choice because uh, they they said a while back that this movie is going to take place in the nineties. But I don't think a lot of people really understood that, especially after the end of Infinity War. People thought, oh, well, it's going to take place after Infinity War, and it's going to and it's going to be about all that. And I was like, no, it's not. This is, we're we're going back in time, and 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 set up her character and everything, and uh, and then bring her back in Infinity War. But I like that it's not a standard origin story. I mean, we're going to get her origin, but they're not going to do it linearly. You know, it's going to be uh, more of a She's already Captain Marvel. She's coming back, and when she gets back to Earth, she starts having memories of her, her former uh, life on Earth or whatever. Which is, I think that's a that's a good choice because we, and Marvel knows we don't need origin stories as as much as we used to need them. Uh, we never did. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I mean, look at look at the the first Michael Keaton Batman. Yeah, exactly. Yes, there was an origin story in it, but they. You know, Tim Burton was a genius with that movie. I have a lot of problems with that movie, but one thing that was 
that made it, in my opinion, one of, if not the best Batman movie, was Tim Burton went, everybody knows Batman's origin. So we're going to start in the middle where Batman is already out there kicking ass, mm -hmm. and then we will use Batman's origin to give an origin to the Joker. Yeah. And it all, it all worked together. I think it's clever on the part of Marvel that they're going to tell the, the origin of Captain Marvel in flashbacks during a flashback movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's 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 flash. Nice. I also think they were uh, brilliant in the way they set up their movie schedule because you have Infinity War, and they can't turn around and release the second half of Infinity War immediately because that's too quick of a turnaround time, and you still need to introduce the person who's going to be the big hero of Part Two, which is Captain Marvel. So they made sure that the two movies that come out between the Infinity War movies are both essentially flashbacks. Because right. Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I still haven't seen, takes place before the events of Infinity War, and uh, I assume that um, Thanos' Infinity Snap occurs at the end of Ant-Man. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Um, so you get that, and then they jump back to the 90s for Captain Marvel. So by the time we come back for Infinity War Part 2, we haven't seen anything really that's happened after the ending of part one. So they're still picking up right where they left off. They've just given us some additional um, uh, back matter since then. Mm -hmm. Very clever. That sounds gross. <laughs> uh, also, have you, have you, either of you guys seen the uh, test makeup footage for Joaquin Phoenix as a, as the Joker? Don't care. It came out I do so don't care. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that that's actually – I'm not convinced that he's going to look like that at any point during the movie. So people say, it's Joaquin Phoenix in full Joker makeup. No, it's not. Shut up. It's Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix in a freaking clown makeup. He looked like John Wayne Gacy. It's it's a brief, brief promotional uh, teaser vine is basically what it is. Now, I will keep my finger on the pulse of this movie because I'm interested to see how it develops. I don't know that I'm interested enough to actually go see the movie when it comes out. That'll depend on what we see between now and release. Yeah. I'll but, tell you what I was excited to see, though. Did y'all see the new Doctor Who trailer? Yes. Which included a release date! October 7th, baby! We got... Doctor no Who dollars. coming next month. We've got uh, Short Treks coming next month. It, it, autumn is going to be a good time. i got to give CBS All Access credit because I've been complaining, complaining slash simply observing that they have given us no reason to subscribe beyond the end of Discovery's release. And all of these shorts were originally said they were supposed to come out in December. Yeah. But now they're releasing one in October and one in November and two in December, I think, um, so or something along those lines, which is the first smart business move they've made because <laughs> now I've got to resubscribe in October instead of waiting till the end of December. Yeah, that um, that news when they first came out, I was like, okay, so they're going to start releasing them in December, and they said they're going to release one a month. 
and they're supposed to be finished before Discovery starts, but Discovery's supposed to start in January. None of this is making sense. (laughs) (laughs) So now it makes a little more sense. That uh, very loud noise that you just heard was me killing a giant spider that was crawling up my wall. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, I I do have to wonder about, because they've announced, they've shown us who is the main focus of all four of of the Discovery shorts. Mm -hmm. One One is Saru, one is Tilly, one is Harry Mudd, and one is this dude we've never seen before. Yeah. Who's well, not going to survive their short? <laughs> either that or they're introducing him as, and he's going to be a bigger part of season two or something I like sure that. hope so, because yeah. that would suck to be like, I was on Star Trek for ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about Armin Shimmerman. Who? <laughs> the uh scott why don't you uh give us a rundown of how this happened all right um it started on twitter so um i I'm, i do want to toss out here uh, real quick that when we get into the interview um the beginning of the interview i did end up cutting uh a, a decent chunk out of the beginning because i ended up telling this story uh to Armin, or, you know, recounting it with Armin uh, right at the beginning of the interview. But uh, I realized we're going to tell this story here in the wraparound, and it made the intro to the interview too long, so I took it out, and we're going to tell it here. So I'm on Twitter. I am watching, uh, at home, I'm watching The West Wing on my phone. Season three of The West Wing, the finale takes place at a Broadway theater where the White House senior staff is um, taking in a show. And... As we come up on the end of the episode, uh, the camera will focus on the West Wing, um, the White House senior staff, and then it switches to the production that's going on on stage. And the dialogue and the music is overlapping back and forth in classic Aaron Sorkin style. So you see a bit of what's happening on the stage, and it's mixed in with the, the story of the episode. And people have noticed in the past that at the beginning of the episode, the name Armin Shimmerman shows up in the credits. Mm -hmm. And as you'll hear in the interview, this is a way that Armin can tell very quickly if he's talking to someone who's just blowing smoke or if they're legit, because if they say, I loved your work on the West wing, then they're not paying attention (laughs) because you don't really see him in this episode of the West wing. His name is there, but he has no speaking role. And the only time you see him, the only time you see him (laughs) is during one wide shot of the stage of the Broadway stage where this play is happening. And only if you know where to look, can you tell, Oh, there's Armin Shimmerman. He's front and center on the stage, but it's at such a distance that if you're not looking for him, you're not going to see him. And even if you are looking for him, it's tough. Now, years ago when I saw his name, I kept my eyes peeled for him and I've watched the West wing many many times i'm on my third rewatch of this year right now it's usually on in the background when i'm doing other stuff it's my most commonly watched show star trek is my favorite franchise but west wing is my favorite show and years ago i had focused i said i'm going to find him and sure enough when we got to that wide shot i spotted him right there so i've had that bit of knowledge uh on hand for several years so last month I'm watching that episode and we get to the end of it, the credits roll. And I just send out a tweet just for fun. Just finished watching at Shimmerman Armin's star making role, no landmark performance. 
in season three finale of the West Wing. I love this episode. Tweet. <laughs> Less than ten minutes later, the only, the first reply that I get to this tweet is Armin Shimmerman saying, Landmark? I defy anyone to find me in that episode. It's like trying to find Waldo. <laughs> um, he goes on to say that uh, most of what they filmed for that episode did not make it to screen. It's an interesting story, but too long to cite here. Well, I know an invitation when I see one. So I responded to his tweet saying, would you consider appearing on a podcast and telling that story? Immediately after that, I follow up with another tweet that has a screenshot of that stage from the episode, and I had circled Armin right in the middle. And I tweeted out that photo with him circled. I said, by the way, there you are. <laughs> he was very impressed by this. Um, considering how many times he told me he was impressed, both uh, in di direct message tweets, on the phone, and then during the interview, I have to believe that he was genuinely impressed that I knew where he was in that episode. So he says to me, uh, I made the challenge, and not only did, did you accept it, but you uh, succeeded brilliantly. Uh, the least I can do is accept your offer for a podcast. Uh, so we do some uh, direct messages. I give him my phone number. Uh, the, the following week, he gives me a call. We set up a date. Um, the day of the interview shows up. Uh, he uh, forgets. And... <laughs> He's like an hour and a half late, but he does call me up on the phone and uh, profuse apologies. And uh, he says he can still do it. So 10 minutes later, we were on the microphone uh, doing the interview, which he was he was very gracious with his time. Uh, he did tell the West Wing story and we we're going to start the interview with the West Wing story. Uh, but the discussion of it was cut out of the actual interview. So you're hearing it now. And when we get into the interview, he's going to kick off with the West Wing story, and, and that's where we begin. We're, we're not pretending we had, we haven't heard it, are we? No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. We, uh, we've heard it, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I was so impressed, uh, slash jealous, uh, slash relieved with when I listened to it, because, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I have asked more people onto the show than I can count, uh... A couple said yes. A, a couple said no. Most never bothered responding. Mm -hmm. So when I heard you landed Armin Shermanman just by tweeting at him, I was like, you so-and-so. <laughs> but I was also glad for you. And, uh, and so I was a little leery going into the interview listen, to listen to it. Not because I didn't think it would be great, but because it's the same problem I have listening to other podcasts. Uh, and I've, I've, I've said, I don't know if I've said this on this particular show, but um, as a podcaster, I have trouble listening to other podcasters because, oh my goodness, excuse me, uh, because either they're doing a lousy job and I'm sitting there the whole time gritting my teeth going, God, you suck, or <laughs> they're so much better than me that it makes me feel like crap. <laughs> um, so, it, you know... It's that it's that that rare little sweet zone where someone is like either so incredibly good that I cannot feel bad about myself because they're doing something that I absolutely couldn't, or they're about on the same level and I'm just able to relax and enjoy what they're doing. And it it doesn't necessarily mean that I expect things to be bad. It's just sort of this is the the you know f messed up 
place in my head that I come to other podcasts with. Um, but when I started listening, and you started off with that West Wing thing, and I was like, oh, thank God, there's no way in hell I would have ever known that. <laughs> <laughs> so right off the bat, the, the onus of, gee, why didn't I do that was gone, because there's no even if I had thought of it, I wouldn't be able to do it, because I've never seen the West Wing, uh, you know, Real politics pissed me off enough without watching fictitious po- politics. So, you know, and then you proceeded to have a brilliant conversation with him, uh, and you asked some great questions, and you mentioned my name twice. So I'm 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 thrilled with that. Thank you. <laughs> Armin has now heard my name for whatever that's worth. <laughs> so, um, just uh, I I applaud you, sir. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, I wanted to make sure that I got your name in there. I got the name of this show in there. I uh, got a few other podcasts and names in there from uh, uh, questions that I had gathered. And I will say, regarding the West Wing, I understand your uh, uh, current, let's say, discomfort with real-world politics. I follow you on Facebook. Uh, I follow you on Twitter. I you know I, I feel your pain. I, <laughs> I feel your pain. I feel your pain. And I will say that many people, myself included, have found the West Wing to be a balm for the soul in these past two years. I think I read somewhere that online streaming of the West Wing took a noticeable uptick after the 2016 election. And for people like me, it's still going on because you can read the news about what's happening in the here and now politically. And people who are familiar with the West Wing will go back and watch it because they want something to help them feel good about politics. And the West Wing does that. And Armin mentioned something similar in the interview, how we wish that real world politicians were more like what you see on the West Wing. And it's absolutely true. So, Especially if you're in any way a fan of Aaron Sorkin. Um, Rick, I know you had Netflix. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole series is on Netflix. I strongly recommend that if you've never tried it, try it. If you tried it before and you didn't uh, stick with it, give it another go. No, because never tried it. Uh, it. At least check out the pilot episode. One of the strongest pilots for any show you're going to see. It It really is an outstanding show. It will remind you, even if it's fictitious, there have to be people out there that can treat politics the way it should be treated, like the characters do on this show. Hmm. It will make you feel a little bit bad that, that the real world doesn't operate like this politically, but it's still going to make you feel better because it gives you that, brief little retreat into good politics instead of what we have today. So give it a shot. Give it a try. Okay. Um, now what I want to do is I, I don't want to interrupt the interview for commercials. So I'm going to go into a commercial break here. And after the, after the commercials for an, a, a couple other shows here on the network, you'll hear the interview that Scott did with Armin Shimmerman. And it lasts uh, about a little over an hour, right, Scott? Um, I think after cuts, I think it was just under an hour, but okay. about an hour. Okay, about an hour. Then when the interview's over, you'll hear a couple more commercials, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, what 
what you just heard. So uh, here is Scott's interview with Armin Shimmerman. We'll return after these messages. Hey, you listener. Do I have everybody's attention now? Do you like professional wrestling? What? If so, you'll love Review Mania, where Rob and Zach break down every WrestleMania. You'll hear about great epic matches by the likes of Hulk Hogan. And what's it gonna do when Hulkamania and the largest arms in the world run wild on you? Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, yeah! Ric Flair. Just stealing! Woo! Wheeling, dealing! Limousine right! Jet flying! Son of a gun! Bret Hart. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be! Shawn Michaels. Bret Hart, you are a zero, my hero. John Cena. The champ is here! Brock Lesnar. Suplex City, bitch. And so many more that I don't have time to even name. Check out Review Mania right here on CosmicPotato.com. Or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spreaker. It's a happening right here on CosmicPotato.com. Arriba! Hey everybody, I'm Troy. And I'm AJ. And we are the hosts of the World War G podcast, along with Colton, but he's not here right now. Yeah, so pay no attention. Uh, and we're a podcast about everything geek. We talk about uh, movies, television, video games, comic books. Uh, we got movie commentaries, the occasional taste tests, like these lovely pina colada Oreos. Just don't try the Coke ones. No. Dang, what do we say after that? <laughs> Dang it. Um, so oh, okay. I'm, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can find us right here at CosmicPotato.com or at WorldWarG.Podbean.com. Or wherever else you get your podcasting fix. And as always, stay geeky, my friends. Well, uh, welcome, listeners, to a Cosmic Potato exclusive interview with uh, a man that most of you listening to the show are probably already familiar with from his um, star-making and unforgettable appearance as uh, Talking Jewelry Box on Haven, first season episode of Star Trek Next Generation. Some of you might remember him as the Ferengi bartender Quark from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. All seven seasons of the show, Armin Shimmerman, thank you so much for letting me ramble through that intro. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Um, I suppose you want me to start with the story, which I'm happy to tell. Um, I don't remember exactly when I shot West Wing. I don't know if it was during Star Trek or after Star Trek. Could have been either. Maybe you know. Do you know when that episode was shot? Um, I don't remember when the episode was was shot, but Deep Space Nine ended... In 98. So it would have been, uh, it would have been shortly after. Yeah, shortly uh, after. Yeah. So I was a huge fan of West Wing, huge fan. And, uh, one day I got a phone call from a friend of mine who was a casting director, not on West Wing, but on someone else, on some other show, Megan Brandman. And she said, Armin, uh, I'm here in the building with the West Wing people and they're looking for Shakespearean actors to do this sort of mock play for an episode of, of West Wing. And she said, would you mind coming in and, and doing some Shakespeare for them to see if 
you might be right for one of the characters that they're trying to do in this mock Broadway show, Shakespearean show. So I was a big, huge fan, and I decided, yes, I would come in. I came in and did a monologue that I had been doing since I was a young man uh, for classical theater. I didn't have a speech from Richard III, and uh, they loved it. And within 24 hours, they said, we're going to ask you to play... It's not really Richard III, but Richard Gloucester, uh, before he's Richard III, uh, on this episode. And I said, great, terrific. I was excited about being on West Point. The script came, and I leaped through the pages, and nowhere in the script was there a mention of Richard Gloucester, or Richard III for that matter. In fact, uh, at the end of the episode, it simply said, that they were going to do a series of scenes for this mock Broadway show. I started rehearsal and found myself not with the regular West Wing people, but with an entourage, an ensemble of actors and singers uh, who were going to prepare a, a mock Broadway musical based on Henry VI, part three. And they had hired a Broadway director to do it. Uh, there were about, I would say, eight people who were asked to take part. There were four principals and I think four or five background people. Um, again, I had no lines. We, we, they just asked me to take part in this, but they hadn't really thought it through about what I personally was going to do. Uh, we rehearsed for six days. And, uh, which is unusual for a TV show to rehearse at all and not shoot. That's very unusual. But because they had hired a Broadway director, we had done that. And then they called us in on a Friday, if I remember, to say, okay, this is the day we're going to shoot what you've rehearsed. Uh, we all assembled in the morning. The director walked into our rehearsal room where we were going to shoot it and said, the episode is running long. We don't have time to include any of the things you rehearsed. <laughs> um, we are just going to do some walk-bys, and we have a little speech here and there that we'll do, but we won't do any close-ups. It'll be from far away. And uh, and I still had no lines, and I really had nothing to do except stand in the, with the ensemble. Um, so they, they took about 15 minutes to shoot what we had thought would take about 20 minutes of airtime turned out to be seconds of airtime. And when I saw the episode with my wife, when it was done, my wife said, where were you in that? <laughs> and I had a great billing. I had wonderful billing. Um, and I said, I, I know where I was, but I, I dare you to find me. And she couldn't find me. So Scott, I am still impressed that you were able to find me in that uh, footage. But you did, and you were very good about it. And and uh, and people always say to me sometimes, and they don't always say to me, but sometimes say to me, uh, you know, I loved your work in West Wing. And I said, if I you find me in West Wing. <laughs> uh, but um, I still get residuals from it, which is nice. And I have the honor of being uh, have, having done an episode of West Wing. <laughs> and I... Basically Richard III or Richard Gloucester. Uh, hutchback and limp 
um, uh, and all uh, in that episode. I have to say that uh, before hearing this story, I, if anyone had asked me to guess how they went about filming uh, that particular scene or that production for that episode, I would have been entirely off base. Um, not knowing that it was an artificial production, I would have assumed that they had either found um, uh, a dress rehearsal or, or arranged for an additional short performance where they could film uh, some of the stage action for an actual production that they could then insert into the episode. Because you, you don't often see the actors from the West Wing and the characters on the stage at the same time. And when they do, it's at quite a distance. You can, that sort of thing I assume could be, uh, could be faked. But to learn that they spent an entire week rehearsing a fake production just for the episode that didn't end up getting into the episode much in the end anyway is exactly. you can imagine i don't think i'm exaggerating the hundreds of thousands of dollars that were wasted <laughs> glad i'm in it uh but that were wasted on bringing a broadway director out from new york hiring people to learn music because there was singing done mm-hmm. uh, um rehearsing us paying us um uh, you know for me, it was a guest star scale. I'm sure some of the others got guest star scale, which is several thousands of dollars. Renting the room. Everything that was involved cost money. And for them just to just come in on Friday morning and say, no, nope, we're not going to shoot any of this. We're not going we're gonna <laughs> to shoot some of it, but we're, we're not going to keep most of it. Right. So it was a lesson in how often money is wasted in TV production. True, true enough. However, I have to say that the uh, the musical number that came from Nicholas Nickleby that made it into uh, your, your mock production, w- without that, the the ending of that season finale would would have fallen quite flat without without that number. So that's very kind of you. To, to uh, send that to send the season off on such a note required you and the rest of the people on that stage. So you at least have that to hold on to. Thank you. And one, and the of, residuals. one of the dearest memories I have is that several of the actors uh, from the regular show, Martin, uh, I the president, Martin, Martin, Sheen. Martin Sheen, and the man who played his uh, uh, executive in chief. Uh, his, uh, his chief of staff, Leo McGarry, played by uh, the late John Spencer. Right. Both, both of them would come in every other day to our rehearsals and show up their Shakespeare. They would come in and we would, of course, stop when they walked into the room. And they would say, well, let us do a little Shakespeare for you because we were all doing Shakespeare. <laughs> and, uh, and they did their, uh, what must have been their original audition scenes when they were young men. Um, and that, that is a fond memory I have from that week of rehearsal. If I could steal, if I could steal it from you, I would. That sounds fantastic. I have to say that while Star Trek is, of course, my favorite franchise of all time, I, you, you can't see it in the uh, the video of this Skype call, but I have a fake Starfleet Academy diploma that I made myself hanging up behind me, along with a reproduction of the flute that Patrick Stewart had in Next Generation. Um, there's an audio book behind me. There's action figures over there and a signed sword of Kalis reproduction <laughs> in the closet that my wife got me for my birthday this year. Um, I'm a bit of a Star Trek fan. So am I. As far as a franchise, that is my favorite. But if you're talking in my favorite Star Trek series, 
Deep Space Nine. Not just saying that because you're here. Um, <laughs> but as far as individual television series, The West Wing is still, as a standalone, my favorite. I was literally, you interrupted an episode of it on Netflix when you called me on the phone. Oh, so that's, I, I'm, in, I'm in my third rewatch of 2018. It's uh, a great show. Uh, and I wish that politicians nowadays would act like the politicians on that show. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and we, we could take this discussion in, in the political direction if you want. I don't have any uh, political questions. I have a lot of court questions, but I can rewrite these. <laughs> whatever, whatever you feel comfortable with, I'm, I'm quite uh, eager to answer any questions that you have. All right. Well, we'll, we'll stick with what I've written down for now. Um, and to start with, um, we have some questions that I came up with. I also, uh, uh, harvested some questions from some uh, listeners, friends, uh, Facebook and podcast friends. And those will come later, but first are some that, that I came up with. And first off, you were one of the very first Ferengi to show up in Star Trek at all. Um, in the first season of The Next Generation. Um, now, at the time that Ferengi were introduced, they were slated to be essentially the new Klingons. They were going to be the the main adversarial alien species of the series. Initially, you started out by playing uh, Letek in The okay. Last Outpost in season one, uh, what I refer to as the hostile scavenger flavor of Ferengi. Uh, you came back as Brackdoor in the season two episode peak performance, um, more of a scheming pirate style of Ferengi. Um, and then of course in Deep Space Nine, you show up as, uh, unscrupulous profit monger Quark. And that's really the, the final evolution of the Ferengi as a species. Um, they, they made quite a shift from their first appearance in Next Generation to Deep Space Nine. Now what I wondered is since you were there at the beginning, and you created such a deep and nuanced Ferengi character on Deep Space Nine. Did you have any involvement, or were you at the very least aware of, the process behind the scenes of moving the Ferengi from where they started in TNG uh, to where they ended up by the end of Deep Space Nine? I wasn't aware of the process, but I was the catalyst for the process. Um... I, as I've said many times in other interviews, my performance in Last Outpost was atrocious. Um, was as you, as you so well put, we were supposed to be the new Klingons, and we failed miserably. Uh, and primarily, I failed miserably. I was the chief Klingon, excuse me, the chief Ferengi on that episode. And um, and and like West Wing, if you look at that episode. Uh, he has a little bit of a hunchback and a little bit of a limp. Um, and uh, it was wrong. Uh, it was atrociously wrong. It was miserably wrong. And my choices were completely wrong. The director was not helpful uh, in the sense that he pushed me into areas. I'm not blaming the director. It is primarily my fault. The director pushed me into areas that that only exasperated, exasperated my um, bad performance. Uh, the costumer didn't help with the furs. The prop people didn't help with the blue whips. Um, but we were, we were miserable. We were atrocious. Peak performance was an attempt to try to rectify 
those mistakes and Quark, uh, for the first five years anyway, was my absolute desire to make the Ferengi, at least for me anyway, three-dimensional. Uh, the, the original performance on Last Outpost was less than one-dimensional, and it's perhaps the worst performance I ever gave on television. So what happened was, once I finished the episode of Last Outpost, Star Trek was left with that performance as a template for other Ferengi, and um, they just started sending my tape out to other people, like Max Kudanchek, who later played Ferengi on Next Generation, and said, this is what you have to emulate. And we went from being a vicious race to a comical race. Um, so I wasn't aware of that, except in hindsight now, after many years, but I was the catalyst for it. I notice, um, well, first off, I, I do want to say that uh, I never found your performance to be uh, atrocious in that episode. Um, then I take back my comment about your good taste, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not going to say that that was the, the right uh, direction or the right portrayal of a uh, antagonistic species like the producers wanted the Ferengi to be. But uh, for what you were what you were given... I thought that you, I thought that the role was played effectively, if not constructed effectively, if that makes sense. And I will say, I will say that uh, I would give uh, what most would consider to be an embarrassing amount of money for one of those blue whips. <laughs> um, now, something you said in in your answer just now caught my attention. I wanted to follow up on that. You were referring to uh, your performance as Quark and it being. Uh, what you wanted to be, but you specified the first five years, and I'm wondering if you can uh, go into a little bit more detail on that. I was utterly ashamed of my first performance, well, my second performance on Next Generation. First performance, as you said, was a wedding box. And those two performances are actually linked, and if you want to answer the, me to tell that story, I will a little later. Uh, but I was gung-ho to eradicate that performance from people's minds. And the first five years of Deep Space Nine, one of my primary objectives was to make Quark as three-dimensional as possible, given the parameters of who the Ferengi were. And uh, I strived. The last two years, I didn't strive so much because I felt after five years that I had accomplished what I wanted to do. Uh, but the first five years, I definitely thought, got to do better, got to make this believable, got to make this three-dimensional, got to make this a character that people can appreciate. Most of the time, I get feedback, and, and rightfully so. When I started watching Deep Space Nine, I wasn't too interested in Quark because I hated the Ferengi from Deep Space, from Next Generation, <laughs> and I totally agree with them, uh, with all due respect for the other actors who played Ferengi. But because of that feedback, even back then, I wanted to do what Brent Spiner had once told me that he had done with Data, which was take the character with the least amount of potential and make him the character with the most amount of potential. This was a quote from, from Brent when I was shooting that episode last outpost. In stretching and striving to make Quark as, as nuanced and as... Uh multifaceted, I guess we can say, uh, a character 
as he could be, I, I believe that it was successful. Um, and I don't think it stopped in just the first five years either, but that this dovetails very nicely in, into my next question. Um, one of the, one of the podcasts that I listen to regularly, um, they have been doing an episode by episode, uh, discussion of Deep Space Nine. They recently finished season four and one of their high points for the season four finale is as Rene Aubergenois is being, uh, walked through the promenade about to leave the station and head for the, the changeling home world. He is in bad shape. He is, he's melting. He's falling apart. And Quark comes out uh, to talk to him and to insinuate that he is going to, uh, increase his criminal activities while Odo is gone simply as a way to goad Odo into saying, don't even think about it because I'll come back and I'll put a stop to it, which is when Quark knows, so you are coming back. One of the best line deliveries, uh, if not just in that episode, but in the entire season. Um, it's a, that's a favorite moment for a lot of people. And it shows, again, another side of Quark, not just the part that wants to make all of the latinum, but the part that respects uh, even his enemies, uh, especially when he doesn't want to say so. We saw throughout the course of Deep Space Nine, Quark loving Prophet, uh, his understated respect and friendship with Odo. Um, for one episode, we get to see him interacting with his lost love, the Cardassian ethics professor, uh, Natima Lang. Mm-hmm. Um, and on more than one occasion, his willingness to, uh, take a life, usually of Jem Hadar, uh, to protect his friends and family, um, and even facing down the Ferengi government itself, uh, to ensure the safety of his mother and to make sure that she does not go to prison. Having been able to see all those different aspects of Quark, are there, um, either character aspects or storylines that you wish could have been explored more during the course of Deep Space Nine, but but you never got around to? Are there parts of Quark that we never got to see that you wish we did? Uh, yes, there are. You, you touched on one of them. Uh, the episode with Natina Lang uh, was about a former love relationship. And um, there were uh, early on, there were one or two episodes that that sort of touched upon uh, love relationships with Quark. Uh, I believe in the second season, certainly no later than the third season, um, folklore has it that with the writers told all the aspiring writers who wrote for the, for the uh, future episodes or applied to write for future episodes. Please, no more love stories for Quark. <laughs> um, and so, um, but I would have liked to have seen one or two lasting relationships. It was never going to happen, perhaps. But uh, in my heart, I always hoped that there could have been a love relationship between Quark and Dax. And certainly when I played those scenes, that's what I had in my mind. Um, but that never happened. So that, that's one of the things that, that didn't occur. Aside from that, I believe Ira Bear and Michael Pillar before him provided me with every color of the rainbow for me to explore. And I'm very grateful for that. 
they, I can't imagine what other directions my character could have gone in. And in fact, one of the most eye-opening experiences I had was in the penultimate episode of the, of the show where I had had a meeting. I'm going back a couple of steps here. I had a meeting with the writers and said, guys, um, all the other characters on our show have matriculated. Cisco's becoming a god. Uh, Bashir is a superhuman intellect. Uh, uh, Odo is part of the founders. Everybody is very different from where we started in season one. And I said, I, I don't see that much of a change for Quark, you know. And I was a little bit, not irritated, but saddened by that. Mm-hmm. But when we got to the penultimate episode, I realized how far Quark had come from that first season. And uh, it was a great shock and a great delight to me that I had indeed slowly, imperceptibly uh, matriculated and had grown and had become a, a much more interesting character than I, even I had perceived. So uh, that was great. So no, I don't. I don't see, except from for love relationships, I don't think there's any other path they could have taken me down um, that I can conceive of. Well, I know that in the uh, at the end of Deep Space Nine, we see a relationship begin between Doctor Bashir and Ezri Dax. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in the novels that have taken place after Deep Space Nine, that relationship has ended. So there there might still be a chance for Quark. Oh, thank you. Good. <laughs> Um, I want to step away, and knowing that we are about to hit the 30-minute mark on this phone call, which is uh, all that we had firmly agreed to. So everything after this is, is borrowed time. So I'm going <laughs> to... I have no problem with going on. <laughs> um, I'm going to step away from Star Trek for a moment, move on to uh, a few different questions. Uh, this one coming from uh, one of the uh, co-hosts of Cosmic Potato, uh, Mr. John Irons asks how the uh, Star Trek fandom compares uh, in regards to uh, the passion, devotion, um, their intensity. How does the Star Trek fandom compare to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer fandom? Well, the truth is I haven't uh, been invited to that many Buffy conventions, uh, so that's a very difficult question. I would venture to say, and I'm probably totally wrong about this, the Buffy fans are much more female-oriented than the Star Trek fans. I'm not saying that there aren't male fans of Buffy. I'm not saying that there aren't female fans of Star Trek. But I think because Buffy is a female hero, an incredible one, that she will attract attract more people from that sex than, than perhaps from the other. Mm-hmm. And because Star Trek is, is very much male-oriented, um, even though they have wonderful female characters, but was written by men and was started by Roddenberry, um, I, I tend to see that more as a, as a dominant male sort of story than, than the Buffy, which is a much more female-oriented story. Mm-hmm. And so the fans have to have to be different because of that. 
Now, while I was doing a bit of research regarding uh, your time on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I came across um, it was either a quote or a reference to something that you had said in the past. Um, and if this is a story that's been told in other interviews, then it's probably one of many questions that I'm sure you've gotten before. But I'm bad at coming up with new questions, so it's going to be stuff that people have heard of. Um, I read in my research that uh, apparently you got fired from Star Trek and Buffy on the same day. No, I didn't get fired. <laughs> no, I didn't get fired. That's a, that's a bad word. Uh, but it's the truth in it. Both I lost both jobs in the same week. So uh, what happened was Star Trek came to an end. We shot the last episode. Uh, and four or five days before that, I shot the finale of season four, uh, where my character Snyder was eaten by my friend Harry Groner. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so both of my main jobs in the 90s came to an end within a week, not on the same day, but in a week. Uh, surprise to me, a year later, Buffy called and said, we have one more episode, and I, I said, another episode on Buffy? I'm dead on Buffy. Um, but it turned out to be one of the happiest episodes I ever shot. Not that it was a, a happy episode, but I am enormously proud of the uh, of the work I did on that last episode of mine in Buffy, where I played pretty much uh, um, Martin Brando in Apocalypse Now. That tells me I have to go back and watch Buffy. Um, I've seen some here and there. I've seen some of your performances on Buffy, but I have not had a, a full viewing of the entire series. Um, so now I have to go back and do that. Now, you mentioned a moment ago uh, Harry Groner. Um, Harry is primarily, not that he doesn't do film and TV, he does, but he is primarily a stage actor. He's, a, I believe, a Tony Award winner and uh, has done hundreds of plays where he's played the leading roles. Um, he and I are very close friends. We, we just saw each other on Monday, in fact, at the party. Um, we helped run a theater in Los Angeles together uh, with other people. So, uh, but what he played on Next Generation, you got me. Yeah. Um, well, I I looked it up while you were speaking, and uh, it was in fact uh, Tam Elburn on Next Generation in the episode Tin Man. Uh, he returned uh, right near the end of uh, the run of Enterprise on season four. And, and if, you want to, if you want to see an exquisitely good arc of a performance you must watch Buffy and him as the mayor mm -hmm. his performance as the mayor is beyond beyond it is, it is some of the best work you'll see on TV uh, he's extraordinary uh, as the mayor Alan Buffy uh, I've, I've always enjoyed every performance I've seen him in even small performances such as uh, his brief turn as um, I want to say it's Secretary of Agriculture on the West Wing. I think he showed up twice, but uh, uh, always, always found it compelling. Now, and did you say that uh, he uh, is involved with the uh, Antius Theater with you? Yes, uh, Harry and I, and both of our wives, sit on the board of Antius. Uh, in fact, Harry's wife Dawn is responsible for me sitting on the board. Uh, she was, she and Harry have been members. For 30 years, I believe it's 30 years, uh, they came to me and asked me to sit on the board. Uh, after I sat on the board, uh, my wife Kitty became a board member, and and now we are leaders in Antius. 
uh, my wife Kitty is one of the three artistic directors of the theater, uh, but all four of us, Harry, Don, Kitty, and I, are are very much the leaders of, of some of the leaders of of our theater entities. Uh, as someone who uh, once upon a time spent uh, at least a decade and a half uh, doing uh, multiple uh, stage performances a year uh, throughout high school and uh, after that in the local community theater, I always love any story that has to do with actors in film and television that I and others uh, enjoy and respect and knowing that they are doing whatever they can to keep live theater uh, as strong as possible. Well, we have many actors from Star Trek who, of course, do that on a regular basis. Uh, obviously, the most uh, visible is Patrick Stewart, um, who continually wavers between television and film and theater. Um, but we, there are many people who do that. Brent Spiner does that. Lorena does that. Uh, on, on our, Colomini does that. Andy Robinson does that. Um, many people, Jeff Combs does that. Uh, Sid does that. Alexander Siddig does that. Uh, I could, I could go on and on if I had a moment to think about it. Now, you mentioned, actually I mentioned, uh, Antius Theater a moment ago and that really works nicely into my next question because you played a character named Antius once. Mm-hmm. On Stargate SG-1 from the species The Knox, from the episode also, The Knox. Uh, I find it's one of your more frequently cited, uh, genre fiction roles. And it was just a one episode appearance, uh, which really makes me wonder if that character was intended to appear more than just the once and it never happened, or was it always intended to be just a, a one episode intro to that species? Well, there's an interesting story behind it that I'm not so sure that I can relate, um, but I can answer your question. Uh, my character on Stargate, indeed called NTS, although I don't think the name was ever mentioned in the episode, was intended to come back a couple of times. Um, but yes, he was supposed to recur. And in fact, the lady who played my wife, the actress's name I've forgotten, uh, came back for a number of episodes. Uh, and I was supposed to come back with her, but as I said, that was uh, not possible. Nothing sinister or, or nefarious. Uh, just simply, just couldn't do it. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago Patrick Stewart, which, of course, uh, everyone who watches Star Trek loves Patrick Stewart. And he has been huge in Star Trek news of late with the announcement at Star Trek Las Vegas that he is returning to Star Trek in a new series um, that is not yet been announced as far as when it's coming, what it's going to be about. Um, it's a topic of much speculation, but all we know is that he is returning. And I'm certain that people have been asking you this question since then. I'm no, you're ask- this person, uh, Scott, and uh, uh, although uh, Michael Dorn and I have had a little conversation about it, but uh, no, we're all in the dark. And, and uh, besides for Michael, who didn't ask me, we just talked about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know what it's about. I'm, I'm happy that uh, Patrick will put the uniform back on, but w- what it's about, who's doing it, I'm, you probably know much more than I do. Well, what, what I'm more interested in finding out is whether or not uh, you would have an interest in 
rejoining Star Trek? If there's, aside from Discovery, if we have more series coming to television, do you have an interest in returning to Star Trek, either as Quark 20 years down the road from Deep Space Nine, which is when this new series is allegedly going to be set, or as an entirely new character? Um, would you want to come back into the fold? I would absolutely want to come back. Uh, I was a huge, and still am, a huge Star Trek fan. It's, it's too long a story to tell, but because I was a fan, that's how I sort of started on Star Trek. Um, again, it's a very long story. If you want it, I'll give it to you. Uh, so, yes, I would definitely go back either as Quark or as another character. I would like it if it would be Quark. Uh, the great thing about wearing all that makeup is 20 years later, I can look exactly the same, <laughs> which you can't necessarily have with data. Um, so, uh, yes, I would be delighted. I, I have no idea what uh, the new Patrick Stewart series is about, whether it's the same timeline, whether I could show up or not as Quark, don't know. Um I, I'm, I hope to be delighted to find out. Uh, I can hear the petitions beginning already uh, for Quark to return. <laughs> yeah. And after your mention of Michael Dorn, these petitions are going to be bring Quark and Worf back to Star Trek. Uh, let them you know, work. I know Michael will answer the same way. Michael would be eager to, to put on the makeup and go back as Worf. Um, and by the way, uh, Michael... And Avery are two other Star Trek actors who do theater all the time. Mm -hmm. I've uh, uh, seen several interviews with Avery Brooks that are about having nothing to do with Star Trek. Um, but to see him uh, speak on the other work that he does, uh, I, I basically find Avery Brooks to be riveting in anything he says and does. He is a unique individual. It was a great honor to work with him. And... Uh, uh, he always moved us to do our best. Um, director of uh, my favorite episode, and I believe I've read uh, yours as well. Uh, Far Beyond the Stars. It's my favorite episode, yes. Uh, it, it's outstanding. We could spend too long talking about that particular episode. Um, so I will I'll back it up and ask about another favorite memory, not from Star Trek, because we know it would be Far Beyond the Stars. This, as well as the last question, comes from the, the podcast I mentioned earlier, uh, Into the Wormhole, um, which is the Deep Space Nine rewatch podcast. Um, I asked them for some questions, and they were kind enough to send them along. Uh, this one would be, do you have a favorite uh, memory or favorite moment from your time as Stan the Caddy on Seinfeld? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I can be quite upfront with you about this. I hated doing Seinfeld. <laughs> uh, why did I hate it? Um, because the four leads were the most non-communicative, non-friendly, unwelcoming actors uh, that I've ever worked with, and I've worked with a lot of actors. And... and What's bizarre about that is that Jason Alexander is an acquaintance of mine uh, before I did Seinfeld, and uh, he too was rather standoffish while I was there for a week. Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, 
It provides me a lot of residuals, for which I'm great, grateful for. <laughs> but it, uh, one of the things, if I may tell this story, one of the things I learned as a series regular is that as a series regular, it is your responsibility to make a set comfortable to all the people who are there for only one episode. It is your party. You are the host. You make sure that your guests feel comfortable, both because it's the right thing to do, and two, if they feel comfortable, they do better work. If they do better work, your work is better, so it's self-serving as well. But just, just making sure that people feel comfortable, especially on a show like Star Trek, where everything is bizarre, where you're looking at people at makeup, you're looking at sets that aren't familiar, you're looking at props that don't make sense. Um, everything is bizarre, and you are being asked to perform at the level of the series regulars, the recurring characters who have been there for years. You have to be at the same level as those people, and it's just not fair. So, as the host of the party, it is my responsibility to make you feel comfortable, to welcome you, to, to, uh, to assure that everything is bizarre is explained and that, that, uh, you are, that you feel part of the family. Mm-hmm. None of that was done on Seinfeld when I played the caddy. Um, uh, there are, I could go into details, but, but they did, I don't think they did it purposely. It just never occurred to them to be outgoing. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you a story if you have time. Um, we were shooting the episode in, and on sitcoms, you only shoot one day. You rehearse for four or five days and then you shoot it on the fifth day. Mm-hmm. So we were shooting on the fifth day and the, the, the gaffer, the, the guy who's in charge of lights said, came over to myself and Seinfeld and Julia Dreyfus and said, um, uh, there's a section where the three of you are sitting on a court pew, and we need to relight this and reshoot this. We don't have any stand-ins. Could the three of you sit there while we refocus? We all agreed to that. Um, the pew was was snug. The three of us were sitting on it, but we were shoulder to shoulder, literally touching each other's shoulders. Mm-hmm. It's around Christmas time. Um, Julia and and Seinfeld were discussing their, I'm sitting in the middle, they are on either side of me. They're discussing their, their Christmas plans and what they bought for their family. Uh, this goes on for about 20 minutes while they're doing relighting. Not once, I'm sitting between them. Mm-hmm. Not once did they ever say to me, uh, sorry to be talking around you, oh, what are you doing for Christmas? Um, I was I was no more important to them than the wooden pew that we were sitting in. I was simply there to provide them cues for their lives. Um, so, long-winded answer, I have no favorite memories from Cycle, except maybe leaving the set when the episode was finished shooting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that we got such uh, an upfront and honest answer. I'm sorry to have brought up such a such a painful memory. <laughs> It's not painful because I get a lot of residuals. 
Uh, <laughs> they always uh, dull the pain. But uh, there's only been one other show where people have been that rude. And I've done, I don't know, close to 90 TV shows. And that's just the shows, not counting the episodes. Um, rarely do you ever experience that kind of, of insolence. Moving back to Star Trek for a moment, I have just a couple more questions that I got from other sources. One of the, uh, again, uh, occasional contributors to Cosmic Potato and the host of many other podcasts, uh, he's been uh, an occasional podcasting partner of mine for quite a while. That would be uh, Mr. Rick Tatro asked, and we might have touched on this a little bit uh, earlier on, um, wondered how much of a hand that you had. Uh, we've discussed your um forming of the character of Quark. Um, he was curious how much of a hand you had in the in the writing of of his dialogue throughout the series. Uh, was, was much of his voice yours, or or what did it all come from from the screenwriters? It all came from the screenwriters, not only for my character, but for every show after Next Generation uh, it was always from the writers. The, the actors had. Absolutely no impact. We, we had meetings with the writers and, and we might ask questions. Um, and, and indeed we might even make suggestions, but the final say was always the writers. And the voice of Quark is the voice of, of Ira Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. Um, those are, those are the two primaries for Randy writers. And, um, and there were others as well. But but it's their voice, and and we had to say it exactly as written on the page. Our script coordinator Judy Brown, the the most uh, reassuring words we could get from Judy was when we finished a take, we would all sort of look to Judy, and if she said DLP lovey, then we knew that we'd gotten the lines exactly right. DLP dead letter perfect. Um, and and if we got a DLP, and it was up to the director to decide whether we would do another take or not. But if it wasn't DLP, we were required to do another take because it had to be exactly the way it was on the page. Now, sometimes the actors would add things, sounds, movements, um, shrugs, acting, uh, relationship things. That's our job. But the words had to be what was on the page. And we had relatively little input into forming those words. Uh, understand the politics of this. For generations, writers were not allowed on movie sets. When movies started, they didn't want the writers there, and which allowed the actors and the director to improvise if they needed to. They did not want the writers there. They were forbidden from the sets. Writers became aware that they couldn't make any inroads uh, as far as preserving their scripts in films. So that when TV came around, they began to realize if we become writer-producers, we have the ability to say, no, you do it the way it's written. Mm -hmm. And it is no surprise that uh, most of the producers nowadays on a TV show if, if they're not the director producers or in some cases the executive producers, um, they're usually the writer producers and they are protecting their scripts. As a fan of Star Trek, I'm so glad they did. <laughs> yes, so. Um, 
right, the the last of the regular questions that I have on my list. This comes from the the host and creator of Cosmic Potato, Mr. Sean Ray, um, asks in general what your thoughts are on Star Trek of today. Uh, this would include uh, thoughts not to repeat what you may end up saying in the uh, What We Left Behind documentary, which we are all looking forward to. Um, but if it's thoughts on how Deep Space Nine or the other Trek series have aged, thoughts on uh, Discovery, on the new movies, on the current state of Star Trek fandom, anything that you might want to share regarding how you feel about Trek, where it stands in 2018. Well, I'm embarrassed to say that I've only seen one episode of Discovery. And uh, not that it wasn't very good. I, I just, my life is full and I don't watch as much TV perhaps as other people do. A lot of it is given over to Antaeus and, and taking care of that. And because I do plays, uh, although I can take things, um, I don't usually watch things on TV. And I don't take very much. Um, I believe, and I'm very prejudiced about this, I believe of all the, of all the Berman Star Treks, I believe Deep Space Nine is holding up the best because we weren't about going to some foreign planet solving their problems in 45 minutes, but really about relationships between characters and exploring their, if I may use this word, their humanity. Uh, so I believe Deep Space Nine is becoming ever more popular because it continues to appeal. As far as the movies are concerned, for me, Star Trek is about social issues and about teamwork and about hope. And the movies certainly reflect that but I would like to see them reflect it more. Um, and, and I'm not putting them down. Uh, Chris Pine is, a, is, a, is an old friend of mine. His dad and I are very close friends. In fact, we're neighbors. Um, so um, the movies are wonderful, but, but it's about selling tickets for movies and not necessarily always about exploring social issues, what Star Trek was always meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, uh, I must admit myself included, have felt that the recent Star Trek films have been a bit more blockbuster action films right. rather right. than Star Trek message films, which is why contributor to this podcast, Rick Tatro, who I mentioned before, he and I are definitely of the opinion that while uh, we welcome Star Trek films being made, uh, we've never felt that film was really the best place for Star Trek to live. It's not. Star Trek is really very good at being episodic. Whether it's going from planet to planet or, or involving relationships as we did, it really needs to be episodic. You need to see how things build. And, and again, it's always been about social issues. That's the, that's the, the beauty of Star Trek. And as you rightly put, um, movies are about selling tickets and making sure that you make a profit. Um, and, uh, J.J. Abrams is, is, as I understand it, is, is very good at that, selling tickets, um, and gives you your money's worth, but it doesn't necessarily, but it slights on the social issues. It's loud and it's bright and it's, it's like, 
I almost feel bad saying this. It's almost like uh, junk food entertainment. It's delicious while you're watching it, but it doesn't stay with you the way that the best of television Trek should and does. Um, it's for media. Uh, he does the best he can. Um, it's just I really do think Star Trek is perfect for television and secondarily good for um for movies. That takes me through all of the actual interview questions that I had, and I don't want to uh, monopolize your entire day. So um, if there are any other uh, thoughts or missives or pieces of advice for the listeners, uh, things that you wish that interviewers would ask more about, here's your opportunity. If this is this is freeform. This is improv. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> so I alluded to something I think I want to expand upon. I said earlier on, I think I've said twice now, that I was a, a large Star Trek fan. Uh, when Star Trek came out in the 60s, I was glued to my set every Wednesday night to see it and uh, adored watching it, fell in love with the characters. One of the great pluses of being a, a regular on Deep Space Nine was uh, I met and become friends with many of the Star Trek people, that the shows that follow up followed us, as well as the shows that preceded Deep Space Nine. And that includes the original series. So um, the fact that um, when he was alive, I was friends with Leonard Nimoy, um, yeah, friends with Walter Koenig, uh, friends with George Takei. I cannot tell you how blessed I am to have had those friendships. And that's only because I was on Star Trek. But let me tell you about my anecdotal story about how I got onto Star Trek. Perhaps that might be interesting to your listeners. I was doing another show recurring uh, called Beauty and the Beast with Ron Coleman. And uh, it was a recurring part, which meant that I wasn't on every episode. It was my first large job, I would say. It was my first job, but my first large job on television. I'd come from New York in the theater. And uh, I got a phone call from my agent to audition for Haven, the episode in Next Generation where I appear as a talking gift box, basically a prop that talks. And I auditioned for it and got it. Static. I was going to be on Star Trek. Oh, my God. At that point, Next Generation wasn't on. So uh, I had heard about it, but I, I was going to actually be on the show that I had adored for decades. I, I was above the moon. Before I actually came to the day where I was supposed to shoot that, the agent called and said, uh, Deep Space, uh, excuse me, Beauty and the Beast has just called, and they need you the day that you're shooting Star Trek. So you're going to have to give up the Star Trek and do the Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I was chagrined by that. And, and, and they assumed that was a fait accompli. And I said, wait, wait, wait. I'm not so sure I want to give up the Star Trek. And and they argued with me for about a half hour about why I should. And when I look back on it, they were absolutely right. It's what I should have done. It, the, the business sort of indicated that. I mean, Beauty and the Beast was my bread and butter job. Why was I going to give that up for a very brief appearance on Star Trek? But they, of course, did not win that debate. And and I went on to do Haven. Two or three episodes later, they were casting 
Last Outpost, which is the first appearance of the Ferengi. And on most TV shows, you can't go back on to and play a different character until perhaps a year later, two years later, three years later. Mm-hmm. You just do that. It's not. It's it's it, the producers will say no. They'll recognize him from two episodes ago. That 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 you can't do that. <laughs> but because I was in a lot of makeup in Haven, and I would be in a lot of makeup in Last Outpost, they said. We were looking for short actors to play Ferengi, and we just worked with Armin. Why don't we use him again? So because I had just worked for them, I was high on their list for the Ferengi. I had to audition for it, uh, and of course I got it. But all of that would not have happened if I had not been a big fan and said to my agent, I'm giving up my episode of Deep Space, excuse me, of Beauty and the Beast in order to do pretty much a, a walk-on, or if you want to put it a different way, a <laughs> theme on, uh, on Next Generation. Uh, actors' lives, and it's not just actors, people everywhere, are affected by something they do at the spur of the moment, something they didn't necessarily plan because they took a right instead of a left, or they took a left instead of a right, all of a sudden their lives are, are changed for the, for the rest of their being. This was what happened to me on Star Trek. I, I, I said yes to something I should have said no to, and the rest is history. That, that's an incredible story. I, I wanted to compare it to my decision to actually ask if you wanted to be on a podcast, which I definitely was on the fence about before I said that tweet. Um, not that this is necessarily a life-changing conversation, but the day is young, so so you never know. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question. My mother wanted to know if the Ferengi teeth were as uncomfortable to wear as they looked. They are uncomfortable, but the great thing about the teeth, they're like Dracula teeth. The moment a take was over, they got pulled out. Uh, where <laughs> stay. And uh, Renee, who of course played Odo, used to say he was envious of the teeth because he couldn't remove any part of his makeup, whereas at least I could take my teeth out. It was impossible to eat with the teeth. Mm-hmm. I must say, secondarily to eating, perhaps the most difficult thing to do was to kiss. And I don't know how Lita and Ron kissed for all those many years. <laughs> Just don't know how happened. God bless Chase for allowing that. Um, so they were uncomfortable, but not as bad as one would think. I want to say once again, thank you so much. I can't say it enough for you actually agreeing to be on this uh, podcast interview. As I said before, I my first one. I my character or even got a screenshot of my character in the West Wing. <laughs> I really thought that was impossible. <laughs> Uh, if, if you know where to look, you can find everything online, including Armin Shimmerman on the West Wing, to prove that it actually happened. I would have loved to see you on the West Wing more, but maybe they'll maybe they'll revive that the way they're reviving Star Trek. And Buffy, by the way. And Buffy, yes, indeed. Um, I'm going to watch for you on that as well. I I have I not been my keeping chances up. of being on Buffy are really slim. There's a possibility of being on other Star Trek things, but uh, uh, I am just. Uh, uh, digested food now on Buffy. But, but, but they did bring me back for an episode uh, a year later, so yes, anything is possible. It's genre fiction. We can always make up a reason to bring you back. Right. 
Um, Armin Shimmerman, thank you so much for appearing on Cosmic Potato. Uh, we're glad to have you. If you ever want to come back, I promise we can find a better interviewer than me to do it. Uh, but you can reach out to us anytime. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. What is your favorite way to prepare potatoes? <laughs> uh, I think I like roasted potatoes best. Um, mashed potatoes are just too full of cholesterol, and uh, French fries are equally as bad. Uh, roasted potatoes are, are really my thing. So what's Captain Game Show? Well, the short answer is it's a podcast. The long answer is it's a light-hearted trivia wordplay thunderdome. I call this game Dark and Gritty Kids. Natural Joe. Born Sequel. What's my motivation? Epic Bird Play. Advertising 10101. Rhymecast. Mr. Dalek. Life Coach. I'll come up with games, and my guests come up with answers. <laughs> He's got to put down the ducky if he wants to play the saxophone. Born monogamy. Wolfgang Puck is Darkwing Duck. Big Rimlock is Tupac. My Little Pony friendship is Magic Mike. Correct. <laughs> There's also improv, music, and an inordinate amount of rhyming. Good night, John Travolta, with Klingon like hair. Good night, 3% rating. <laughs> you're tough, but you're fair. You can find Captain Game Show on CosmicPotato.com. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you normally get your podcasts. Round one. Round two. Final round. What? I don't know where this is going, but I like it. Attention, people of Earth. There's a new podcast on the Cosmic Potato Network. You should check out. It's called Wait, You've Never Seen. I'm Shane. And I'm Virginia, and I have no idea what that was. I'm so sorry for the old-timey voice. I can't promise it won't happen again, though. So, Virginia and I will be taking turns watching movies that one of us has never seen. Because I grew up under a rock and have a lot of catching up to do. I am uncultured. So Virginia will be showing me musicals and old-timey movies. Again, we can be heard on the Cosmic Potato podcast network and on our website at waityouveneverseen.com see you then all right we're back and that was that was a uh that was a good interview i really enjoyed that um one thing that stood out to me um when you guys were talking about his appearance on uh, Seinfeld. I went back and watched that episode yesterday because I just wanted a little bit of context of because I had seen it years and years ago. Um, I always remembered him being the character. I remembered his character being a little bit bigger. He only had maybe three lines in the episode, but when he started talking about sitting on a bench with uh, with Jerry Seinfeld and Julie Louise Dreyfus. When he was telling that story, for some reason, I had in my mind that he was talking about he's sitting on like a park bench or something like that. But and I was like, that I don't remember that happening in that episode. So I went back and watched the episode yesterday. There's a scene towards the end of the episode where they're in a courtroom, 
and uh, Julie Louise Dreyfus, Armin Shimmerman, Jerry Seinfeld are sitting on the front the front bench in the courtroom. So I guess that's what he was talking about. But mm-hmm. it, it upset me to hear that his his experience was like that because I've heard that uh, the cast of Seinfeld were not that great uh, backstage and everything. But it's 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 sad to hear it from uh, firsthand like that. Especially from uh, someone that we respect, yeah, uh, yeah, from a show that we that we love, uh, it, it makes it extra sad. I had no idea what his answer was going to be. I don't, I didn't watch Seinfeld. I've never been a Seinfeld person, so I wasn't even familiar with the character. I got this from and and uh, Cosmic Potato listeners. If you're Star Trek fans, if you're uh, Deep Space Nine fans, um, I definitely recommend giving Into the Wormhole a shot. Um, that's the podcast hosted by Poey, Vince, and Mike. Uh, they gave me a couple questions. A few of them worked their way into that uh, interview. One of them was the Seinfeld question. Um, and I had no frame of reference, no context for that question. But it was something non-Star Trek related, so I wanted to make sure it got in there because I was trying to add some variety to it. Yeah, and in that episode, he plays... Uh, his character's name is Stan the Caddy. The episode's name is uh, is The Caddy. And uh, he plays Stan the Caddy, and the whole idea is that Kramer is, he has decided that he wants to be a professional golfer, so he's going to a golf course during the off-season when it's closed, but he's getting in because Stan the Caddy gets him in, and Stan the Caddy gives him all these tips of how to make his game better. Well, Stan the Caddy starts giving him tips on just everyday life stuff as well, <laughs> you know. So he starts he starts asking his advice on, on on everything. It's 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 actually pretty funny, but uh, but now you, when I watch it, I get a little different context. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a shame. I yeah, I never watched Seinfeld. Well, I I tried to watch Seinfeld a couple of times and found it to be utterly boring. Um, and I can believe that Jerry Seinfeld is a douche. I can believe I'm I'm a little surprised to hear that Jason Alexander would was was being a bit of a douche too. I'm heartbroken that Julia Louise Dreyfus was also uh, not at all welcoming. Cause I figured if, if any of them, she would be the nice one, you know, she's got the SNL background you would think that she'd be uh, a little more uh, open, but it's a, it's a shame to hear that they were all like so far as the British say, climbed up their own asses and stayed there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I at least hold on to the possibility that it could be that set, that production, and and that atmosphere more than the people themselves. Um, on a show like that, it's built around Jerry Seinfeld. So I would tend to believe that he is more like that, and he made the set more like that. And the people who were on the set just kind of ended up being that way while they were in that situation, but removed from the show, they would be different, uh, maybe perhaps more like themselves. So Have I think ever- there's still hope that Jason Alexander and Julie Louis-Dreyfus are, are good people who just weren't showing their best selves on that set. Have you ever worked a show with uh, like a big star in the lead who was kind of a, an aloof, snooty douche? And uh, yet, no, I, I've never worked with Mandy Patinkin, no. <laughs> oh, he is not that bad. <laughs> Actually, very nice. Um, I've met him twice, thank you. Uh, <laughs> That's why I said it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, you know, I've been in that situation, and I've, I've never seen that trickle down. And, you know, you could be right. 
you you may be being more generous than I am. Uh, I have very little tolerance for backstage douchebaggery. Uh, I guess because I spend so much time backstage. <laughs> if wow. someone's being an ass, I'm just like, all right, I'm done with you. I will I will do my job for you and nothing more. Um, I, I've had plenty of experiences with that myself. Not with yeah. celebrities. I haven't worked in, in theaters that bring in you know celebrities for a tour in production like you have. It's always been local stuff. But local theater can still have some... Some some nozzles. No, really. <laughs> so. Then it's even more fun. It's like you are not as important as you think you are. <laughs> You're the county clerk. Sure. <laughs> anyway, um, I uh, oh shoot, I had something really pithy and and uh, oh oh, I really got a kick out of the 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 one thing I did get a kick out of about the West Wing story uh, was that Shimmerman took the job for fanboy reasons. And yep, yep. it's you know when you're hearing it, and I've I've seen this before, uh, you know with with celebrities when you talk them everybody's a fanboy or fangirl about somebody else but you don't think about it when you're talking to a celebrity, mm-hmm. and you know how, when he said that he took the gig on the West Wing so that he could hang out with the the stars that he admired on the show and then hardly ever saw them, uh, it was just. You know, I heard so many stories echoed, you know, from my, you know, my, oh, yeah, I took a gig on Miami Vice. Oh, how was, you know, Don Johnson? Oh, well, I saw him, like, across the parking lot for 10 seconds (laughs) one day. Um, (laughs) I was on the second unit, didn't get to see anybody, that kind of stuff. So it was that I got a kick out of that. Yeah, that that, that was cool. (laughs) Yeah, I saw um, I saw a guy at one of the conventions over the summer. God, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was. Like John Anderson, he was one of the Ravagers in Guardians Two, and but he uh, he also was in an episode of Community, but he was in a flashback scene, so he was playing the father of Chevy Chase's character when Chevy Chase was a child, and he said he Chevy Chase was kind of around on the set a couple of times, and he said uh, he said it was kind of hard because Chevy Chase was one of my heroes growing up. And Chevy Chase was not a nice person <laughs> when uh, when I was around him. So uh, that yeah, was that is that is not an uncommon thing to hear about Mr. Chase, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. Now, also, he when he was talking about when uh, Armin was talking about his days on Star Trek, uh, about how it was very late in the series before he realized just how much growth Cork had gone through. Mm-hmm. Um. I saw a video recently. It was after I watched this. Um, there's a video on YouTube of like a convention panel that he was on with Renee Virginois and Alexander Siddig. And um, it was during production of, of Star Trek. And he was kind of saying the same thing, except it was, be- it was before that. He was actually saying he's unhappy that his character has not grown as much as... Uh, as much as some of the other characters. And I, when I hear that, I'm like, Quark grew almost more than a lot of the other characters did on that show. I mean, it, 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 he went through as many, if not more, changes. It's kind of sad that it took him the whole season, the whole series, to realize what a lot of fans had been seeing the whole time. I, I think it is um, a a testament to how well the character was written. If, if the change is so subtle and gradual and natural that even the person who is portraying the character doesn't clearly see 
the changes that are happening until you step back and look at the whole picture, mm-hmm. then that that's good um, uh, character development and uh, and evolution right there. Yeah, yeah, and him being the first. If I'm remembering right, he's the first major, like, main cast Star Trek character that wasn't a Starfleet officer of any of the series, right? Am I remembering that right? Um, um, as far as being like, uh, like his name is in the credits, yeah, and everything. Yeah, he's he, yeah. he was the first one, and he, well, not really because, well, no, because neither Odo nor Kira were Starfleet either. Well, yeah, but they're still part of the part of the 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 military aspect of the of the show they had roles on the on the station and he was a bartender you know and um there's there's still members of the senior crew right yeah uh, the senior staff whereas uh he was i guess the first civilian who was in the who was in the main opening credits anybody got anything else (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Nothing I can ask while we're recording. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still a bit wiped out from from the interview itself, and this happened, uh, uh, you know, just this, a couple weeks ago, and I'm I'm still a little bit, you know, knocked off balance by the fact that it actually happened. Yeah, yeah. Like like Rick was saying, you know, I've I've sent messages to so many people, not just Star Trek people, but lots of people, and. Ninety percent of the time, I don't hear anything back. Uh, there was a couple of times back over the summer when I got a message back saying, "Sure, yeah, I'll talk to you." And then when you message them back to try and set up a time, then you never hear anything back from them. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, now I did. I talked to Virginia Hay over the over the summer because she was coming to town and she wanted to promote that and everything. But. Um, but but this Armin Shimmerman is definitely, as far as the things that we're fans of, he is the biggest uh, name that's even come close to the to the show. I tried the same uh, West Wing connection tactic with uh, Wilson Cruz uh, about a week or two ago. He plays uh, Doctor Culber on Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he showed up in I want to say two, maybe three episodes of the West Wing. Um, and this is in season four, so the season directly after where Armin shows up. And when I saw Wilson Cruz on there, I, oh yeah, that's right, Wilson Cruz. Let me try it again. So I sent out another tweet about seeing Wilson Cruz on West Wing. It did not have the same result. No, I, I didn't hear anything. <laughs> no, they're the you're, you're not going to get near any of the Discovery crew right now because <laughs> yeah, they're, I, I, they're in production and behind a a lock wall (laughs) a mile thick. Yeah. You would have to get paramount to, to, to set that up and they're not going to set it up with a, with a podcast. But, um, because I even tried to get David Mack on the show and, and he's not even on the show. He wrote a couple of novels that about Star Trek, about discovery. And, uh, and he said, no, his, uh, you know, paramount won't let him do it. So, (laughs) David Mack can't do it, and uh, Wilson Cruz won't be able to do it. And I even I, I tried to uh, message um, Sonequa Martin Green because she's from Alabama. I was like, "Come on, Alabama people unite!" And uh, <laughs> she, uh, yeah, I got nothing. She goes, "Yeah." So. <laughs> no, pe- pe- the thing is, uh, for folks like that, you have to go through their agent. 
And, uh, yeah, their first question is going to be, how many listeners do you have? And then their next sound is going to be the slamming of the internet door. <laughs> I think you just lie. <laughs> oh, yeah, three million downloads a week. I mean... <laughs> I have no idea what the numbers are for this show, so I would just be able to say, uh, I, I don't know. I'm I'm just a freelancer on this show. <laughs> just add up all the downloads for the last three years and say, yeah, we've got this many downloads. <laughs> and it would be in the tens of thousands. So, I tell you what, the nicest refusal I ever got was from uh, Bruce Campbell. And this was before... Ash versus the Walking, uh, not Ash versus the Walking Dead. Ash versus the Evil Dead came out. Uh, I sent him a, a, a request on his website, and he just came back and he said, "I'd love to, but uh, I'm in the middle of something, and we're not doing any press until such and such next year. Contact me then." Which was, you know, for a no, that was a nice no. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 weirdest no I got was from Tim Russ. Because I emailed him, said, "Hey, you know, would you come on, come on the show? We'd love to talk to you." And his response was, "How about you send me the questions, and I'll record the answers, and then you can pretend you're talking to me." <laughs> I've heard you tell that story before, and I was like, "Talk about your head being up your own, <laughs> your own butt." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, the, the the thing is, and I don't, you know. I've I've kind of lightened up on that particular affront a little over the years, but it, it's the the thing is, and I I don't think some of these stars, celebrities, whatever you want to call them, understand. I don't give a crap what the answers to the questions are. I want to talk to you. Yeah. My my audience wants you know the audience wants to hear a conversation with the person that played a character that meant something to them. You know, if it's just a matter of information. We can find that anywhere. Yeah, right. It's it's going to be in other interviews and other places. Because you know, one thing I, I noticed in your interview with Armin, uh, and is one of the reasons I kind of stopped per- pursuing actors, is while everybody wants to wants to meet their favorite actor, uh, one thing I learned when talking to Susie and Armin totally backed this up, is that a lot of times you're like, hey, how much influence did you have on your character and the answer is none Mm -hmm. you know it's all in the writing room and then you know yes the actors bring those that that you know that their interpretation to it and they bring the character to life and you know i would not for in in any way say that shimmerman's portrayal of quark was unimportant but you know like a lot of the things i want to know about quark he had nothing to do with he was just handed papers and said, read this. And then he, you know, he did it beautifully. Uh, it's interesting because I just came off of watching two very cork heavy episodes on DS9. Yeah. Um, uh, Rules of Acquisition and then Necessary Evil. And this is still early in the show when Quark is still almost completely a bastard. Um, but you can still see the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the beginning of the subtlety. Uh, and the work that Shimmerman was doing, as he said, to undo what had happened in TNG. Um, but, you know, the storyline itself, I was I was kind of disappointed to hear he didn't have any input on it. Uh, 
because you know I loved Quark's arc. I was one of the people that when DS9 was announced and they said that there was going to be a Ferengi main character, I was like, oh well, f me on that. <laughs> um, and then he became you know he became one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Um, and and it, you know it, it was a combination of his portrayal and the writing. Um, you know, and I don't want to take anything away from Shimmerman's performance, but he said the same thing when I, you know, when I talked to, we talked to Susie Plaxon about Kalar and we're like, Hey, why did you do this? She said, because they told me to, (laughs) (laughs) you know, there always comes this point when you're talking to an actor about, you know, why this? And they're like, cause the words on the paper said to, right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, all right. I guess, uh, Congratulations are in order for, for Scott for a well-done interview. Well, I, Absolutely. I, I appreciate it, fellas. I think it was before I started the recording with Armin that I I mentioned to him. I had I'd been on the fence whether or not I was going to uh, tell him this at all, and I kind of surprised myself by mentioning it right up front before the actual interview began by telling him, uh, this is my first celebrity interview ever, <laughs> uh, which, uh, to his credit, he gave a very fine answer by saying, well, you're still not interviewing a celebrity. So, so you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one thing before, before we go away, I, I want to say I was also, uh, very impressed with the way you handled his, uh, um, accepting responsibility for how horrible the Ferengi were in TNG. <laughs> the fact that you, you know, I, I was sitting there going, would I have tried to go, oh, no, 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 don't. No, you were fine because, you know, he was saying how horrible he was. Mm. And, and of course, your your initial response, you know, re- reflex, reflexes to go, no, no, no. you were. But I'm sitting here going, this dude, you know, this was almost 20 years ago. You're not going to talk him out of it. And you didn't try. I was very impressed with that because I don't know if I would have had the self-restraint to go, to not go, oh, no, no, it wasn't you. <laughs> it was Even though it was awful, you were you were amazing. No, I I I, try, I tried to keep it as honest as possible by pointing out the fact that um, perhaps what what they gave him wasn't the best material, and he did what he could with it, and what he had to work with, he he did his best with, and I I honestly think that the problem lay in the the construction of the Ferengi as a race and the way they were written, the way, like he pointed out, the way they were costumed, the way they were weaponed. Uh, he, anyone playing a Ferengi in the early days of TNG was set up for failure and he was the first. Yeah. Um, so he, he did his best and uh, any shortcomings of the performance, I think were uh, due to the, the ingredients in the recipe and not the cook. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I also like that he, I like how we, how did he put it? The director wasn't being very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had to admire the, 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 the dude's tact is very, uh, is very well honed. Yeah. I, I will be honest that, uh, I, I was holding out a little bit of hope that when I, when I mentioned I would give an unreasonable amount of money for a blue Ferengi whip. There was a part of me that was kind of hoping he had held on to one from those uh, old productions and would offer it. (laughs) That that would have been far beyond anything to hope for, but the absolute best case scenario would have been him saying, I have one. Do you want it? (laughs) 
Likely, no. No. <laughs> a dream, yes. That would have been a dream. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Scott, you want to tell everybody where they can find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, uh, a couple places. Uh, the the twi- the magical Twitter account that allowed all this to happen is my personal Twitter account, which is uh, at Fleet Admiral UFP, uh, Fleet Admiral United Federation of Planets. Um, I do tweets about Star Trek, um, other pop culture things that I like. Um, I retweet stuff about politics. I don't write much about politics myself. Um, and a lot of uh, podcast interaction, that goes there. For professional stuff, my uh, freelance side business as a uh, graphic artist and uh, layout person can be found at Planet Rise. That's my Twitter account for my artwork and business. Um, everyone can feel free to visit that Twitter account, look at some of the images that I posted. If you want a custom-made avatar for your Twitter account or a banner for your Facebook page or your blog, um, I'm always open to take... Uh, uh, contracts and commissions for that sort of thing. Uh, you can also visit my my website, which could probably stand a little updating, uh, but it's got plenty of artwork there as well at www.planetrisecreative.com. Uh, if you don't want to visit any of those places and you just want to uh, contact me and tell me how much you hated the, I mean, how much you enjoyed the interview, <laughs> uh, you can reach me, scott at planetrisecreative.com. All right. Scott is an amazing graphic artist, folks. If you, I mean, you should see the stuff he does. That's the that's the equivalent of doodling, uh, <laughs> and just just for the hell of it. So just uh, you know, and when you see that, you're like, just imagine what he could do if you know there's a couple of bucks behind it. So check it out. Scott Scott's amazing. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a framed uh, cosmic potato poster here on my on the wall of the of the geek the geek cave. That's right. When I when I recreated the poster for Star Trek Generations, um, yeah. my my most proud item. Uh, okay, listener, I will ask you to visit planetrisecreative.com and look through my gallery and find the posters that I made for fake sequels to Serenity and Firefly, movies that don't actually exist. But I did a six poster series where I took the original designs for the Star Trek um, original cast movies, uh, the motion picture through Undiscovered Country, and I uh, repurposed them as Serenity movie posters using the same layout, the same design, but I changed all the characters and, and the elements in there. I ended up being really proud of how those turned out. I, I really enjoyed doing that. And that was just for fun. I, I was bored and I had the idea. I wanted to put it together. Um, my most recent uh, fake poster that I made, you can find on the Planet Rise Twitter account, which is um, a futuristic sequel, no, a futuristic uh, remake called Dick Tracy 2525. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rick, where, where, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at uh, uh, Starbase 66 and the 7th Chevron and Simply Syndicated Movie Quiz at simplysyndicated.com. And uh, yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty much it. All right. And everybody, be sure to go to uh, CosmicPotato.com. Check out some of the other shows that we have available for you. And make sure that you join us next time on Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast, when you might hear Armin Shimmerman say, Hi, this is Armin Shimmerman. Listen to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. 
By the way, that's rule of acquisition 286. Be sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can contact us by email at mail at cosmicpotato.com or send us a voicemail or text message to 205-642-8380. Help the show grow by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you for joining us for Cosmic Potato, the Super Fan Talk Podcast.